arts are everywhere and in everything. And there's a fascinating, unique person and story behind each one. And that's what the Arthropologist is all about. Exploring the arts, one unique person and one unique story at a time. I'm Bill Wilson, and I'm the Arthropologist. Today's guest on The Arthropologist is Daniel Thurber with Bookworm History. Hey, Daniel, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. It's good to see you. Thank you for having me. Yes. Oh, this this is great. I will tell you that we've watched four of your videos today. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think, you know, I've told you over uh, a phone conversation we've had before that, you know, my wife and I, when we're eating breakfast, lunch, and supper, we will actually watch YouTube videos. And we've we've watched really all of yours and just thoroughly enjoyed them. And so I've been going back and uh, watching a few more. So to get started, just tell everybody a little bit about yourself and um, tell us about your YouTube channel and what it's all about. Sure. Um, well, I, uh, by, by day, I suppose you could say, um, I'm, employed as uh, I'm, an, I'm an airline captain for, for a, a major domestic airline. Um, but by night, I guess my, my side hustle, um, I am a uh, historical uh, researcher, writer, filmmaker um, for my own YouTube channel, my own website, uh, which I call Bookworm History. I've been doing that about I want to say I've made my first video, I think, back in 2013. So it's been about seven years. I think I made the website shortly after that when I started coming across stories that I couldn't really translate well into a video format. And I thought, oh, this might function better as an article, but I didn't have any place to put articles. So uh, that was where I started. The website was to be able to write things. And it's since functioned as a sort of melting pot for all of my work for videos, podcasts, articles, anything I can come up with kind of gets funneled through there. Okay. And bookworm history, you are basically uh, reading and uh, commenting and telling some of the history about classical books and other things you've read, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I started the channel because I was so, I was fascinated by, what I like to say, the stories behind the stories. And just the idea that what an author was going through at the time or the historical context within which a book appeared was oftentimes just as important or just as interesting at least as the book itself. And it was to sort of find a place to talk about that and talk about the history of the authors of works of literature and talk about their influences and the things that they were going through or the things that they were influenced by to write a certain work. To, to have a place to discuss that was really the, the genesis of the website or the genesis of my video work. Right. Well, I will tell the viewers that one of the things that really uh, attracted me to your channel was, you know, I don't pretend to be an expert on lots of different pe- pieces of literature, but there have been a couple of pieces that in my own time over the years I have researched and your, uh, your video on Bram Stoker's Dracula was Mm. excellent. I have studied that a lot. I've actually read 
two biographies of Vlad Tepish. So, uh, yeah, yeah. So I was really intently listening to uh, what you had to say about him because I knew if you if you really uh, got him right that you were really doing your research well. And I was I was just tickled to death at at how um, exacting your research was. And the same with the Iliad and the Odyssey, because that's, that's another uh, couple of books that I've really, in my own time over the years, studied. So would you tell everybody, what is your process? I mean, you know, when, you're, when you did your commentary on Dracula, uh, how many books did you read or videos did you watch? What was your research like? For Dracula... I, I believe I put that together mostly from two books. I had a biography of Bram Stoker and I, I had another one that was more almost a biography of the book Dracula it, itself. So between the two of those, I sort of pieced together the script that I, that I used for the video. And, and that's, more often than not, the, the process I've kind of settled on is I'll be reading a book or an article or an uh, old, going through old newspaper archives or, or anything else and find uh, what I like to call of, uh, what I like to call the kernel of an idea. And then I'll take that and I'll kind of focus on that and I'll, I'll see if I can extract enough information to be able to come up with a video for, or for seven minutes, 10 minutes, uh, sometimes shorter, sometimes longer, depending on, depending on what it is. And then if I, usually it comes down to if I have any unanswered questions about something, or if I find a particular topic interesting, but challenging in a way that I haven't really come across before. Uh, lately I've been doing a lot of, um, uh, a little bit of art history and then kind of segueing that into a lot of New York City history, which is uh, where I'm based currently. So it's uh, sort of a relevant topic to me. And a lot of New York City history is, is intertwined in such a way that very oftentimes when I'm working on one project, I will stumble randomly across another newspaper headline or another reference in a, an old city guide or something else. And that will jettison me off on a complete opposite tangent in a complete different direction. And that will evolve into a project all on its own. So it, it's become a very organic process in creating a lot of these videos, just in the sense that I, I start with one idea and I try to focus on that. And more often than not, that will splinter into to two or three different things that I just find myself fascinated by. I try to just be as curious about things as I possibly can be. Right. Um, now, so are you a fast reader or a slow reader? Have you even not? Re into I, I read about as fast as I talk, which is not very fast <laughs> at all. I don't think depending on which of my videos you've watched, I've gotten a lot of comments over the years of please slow down. You talk too fast. Um, no, I, I read about as, as quickly as I talk. I've had times where I've flirted with trying to read faster or trying to use speed reading techniques of, of going, going through line by line and just sort of picking out the important words in a, in a sentence just so that your brain sort of assembles 
the the idea of a sentence, the idea of a paragraph while you're going through it. And it just never really worked for me. Um, so I, I read a lot, but not very quickly. So my, my actual output, the actual number of books that I finish in any given year is not all that high, but I think I translate a lot of that reading time into other research materials. I read a lot of, of historical articles or, or journals or a lot of newspapers, <laughs> a lot of old newspapers. Um, but no, I'm, I'm, I've never been a speed reader as, as such. So you're reading a lot of old newspapers. Where are you getting those from and which ones are you reading? Um, most of, because I'm, I'm again, focused more on New York City, a lot of the, my research for, for recent projects has come from the, the three big ones, uh, the, the New York Times, the New York Tribune, and uh, the New York Daily Herald before the Herald and Tribune merged and then again after that. Uh, the Herald and the Tribune I access through the New York Public Library, which has a lot of, of resources available online and a lot of resources in their digital collections, just as far as images. So most of the most of the images and things that I've used in videos, a lot of them have come from the New York Public Library. It's really been a, a wonderfully just prolific resource as far as that goes. There's a couple of other websites. Um, Google News has a few newspapers on archive one in particular that is wonderful and i think is only run by one person is uh called fulton history uh, or old fulton postcard i think if you google either of those two things you'll you'll come up with this website it's this one guy who has just as a personal project started scanning old newspaper archives on microfilm from across the country and he started in Fulton County, New York, which is what the uh, Fulton history name of the site is from, but research institutions, libraries will send him all of their microfilm for all of these old local newspapers, some of them in big cities, some of them in small towns, and he'll scan it all and he'll put it up on the site 100% for free because it's just him. The site runs with varying speeds depending on the time of day and the, the uh, topic you're looking at, how many search results you get. But that's really been a fantastic resource for looking through older, especially more obscure history because they have a lot of smaller newspapers and a lot of uh, smaller towns and communities on there, which has really been wonderful. Well, that's fantastic. Okay. Now, uh, from listening to all of your videos, watching all your videos, uh, you seem to focus on Western classics. So it'd be like the Iliad, the Odyssey, Frankenstein, uh, Kublai Khan. Uh, uh, I can't think of everything, but um, okay. So in your estimation, can you tell me, what do you think makes a classic? Not that it's just recognized by certain individuals, but that it's something that seems to uh, connect with generation after generation what what is it that's that makes one book a classic and another that fades out hmm i think that to a certain extent there will be books that are classics now because they've always been classics but at the same time to to attain that status i think what really makes something 
classic, whether it's a work of literature or music or a movie or a, a painting or sculpture, anything like that, is that it has the ability to create some kind of an emotional connection in the person reading it, viewing it, listening to it, taking it in. And I think that that has to be something that not just resonates on an emotional level, but also on an intellectual one where you're reading a book that has certain themes. In the, in the case of the Iliad, like you referenced before, uh, one of the overarching themes throughout that book is that not only is humanity flawed, but the gods are very flawed characters as well. There's really nobody in that book that's a good person. <laughs> and as a result, we get to examine the flaws of these characters in a way that I think just resonates throughout the generations. And what makes classics really work is that each generation gets to reinterpret those same themes. The works of Shakespeare I think are universal, not because of the, the language that it was written at the time or the fact that he was taking stories that had already been in large part around for a while, but the fact that he told them in such a way as to allow the audience to connect to the characters and also to reinterpret them throughout the generations. Each generation has their own version of Macbeth. Each generation has their own version of Hamlet. Each generation has their own version of Romeo and Juliet and can try to examine their own faults and their own flaws and their own truths through those stories as the generations pass. I think that is a large part of what makes works timeless. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, going in then along in that same vein, um, since we're talking about timeless books, I'm looking here, I'll look over at my notes. Sure, uh, sure. Do you have in your estimation uh, some of the most underrated and overrated books in uh, history. So there'd be books that uh, maybe in your estimation, they're classics, but maybe shouldn't be. And ones that in your estimation that you've read that you think, wow, these, this is one that really shouldn't be overlooked. Uh, it's, it's, it's tricky because I don't, I'll, I'll preface this by saying I don't ever want to, make it seem as though if, if I, if I say a book and someone watching this says, Oh, I love that book. That's yeah. How dare you say that that's not uh, a classic or that that's overrated or that that shouldn't be read. Um, my, my general opinion is if, if people are reading something and people find something in a book, then that's wonderful. And thus it's, it's doing its job. That being said, um, for me, I, I think the biggest one that comes to mind as, as overrated or certainly just a book that I didn't really understand the hype around <laughs> was The Catcher in the Rye. Um, I, 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 I really, really tried to enjoy that or to at least understand why other people seem to really, really appreciate that book. And again, if, if they do, that's great. But for me, ah, God, I just, I just couldn't, I just, I just couldn't do it. I really did try. I did finish it. Um, but I, I just, 
I, I just couldn't, couldn't quite bring myself to, to really appreciate it on the same level that, that I guess pop culture nowadays <laughs> seems to really appreciate that work. Well, is um, there then a book that you've read that it, maybe a lot of people like it, but it's never risen to the classical stage, but or level, but maybe in your estimation, it really should be. I, you know, I, I would say one of, one of my favorites that I probably read once a year, uh, give or take, I certainly, uh, of, of the few books that I do reread, this would definitely be one of them, would be The Long Goodbye. Uh, it's a, a Philip Marlowe mystery. But as opposed yeah. to the other Marlowe mysteries, with, uh, like The Big Sleep, um, which are very film noir, very pulpy film noir, The Long Goodbye. Okay. Uh Daniel, I want you to hold on a second. You've broken up again. And uh, when we when we get a connection back again, I'm going to get you to uh, start back over with the long goodbye. Uh, but right now, I don't know if you can hear me or not, but I've got you. You're just kind of. Okay. Um, yeah, hopefully, hopefully we're still good. Let me get, get us back to single speaker view. There we go. There we go. Okay. Um, yeah, boy, we had a bad connection there for a second. All right. You were talking about the long goodbye. So if you could start back on that again. Yeah, I, I one of the, one of the things that I, I love about it, and I, I love the book itself very much. It's, hauntingly beautiful and hauntingly sad. And it, there's something about it that just really resonates with me, but it was, it was written uh, Raymond Chandler at the time that he was writing it was there, there, there are two characters throughout the long goodbye that are sort of different versions of Chandler. There's obviously the, the okay, it's, it's told in the first person, perspective. So you have Philip Marlowe, who's telling the story, and Chandler's voice comes through a lot in that, in the sort of hopelessness, I guess, that, that Marlowe seems to convey. Just in the sense that he, he does his job, he feels like he does it well, but nothing ever really changes for him. And the world moves on regardless of whether he gets involved in greater machinations or anything. And he almost feels drawn into this larger plot almost against his will. And then there's a character that is sort of the other face of Chandler who was a just, he's written as a, a pathetic drunk and who befriends Chandler. And you kind of see the, the, interplay between these two characters and you can almost hear, or sorry, he befriends Marlo. You can almost hear Chandler kind of talking to himself when they're together in a scene. But at the time, 
Chandler was very much an, an alcoholic. His wife was incredibly ill and then passed away all while he was writing this while also dealing with the fame that had, had come along from his other uh, very well-received noir uh, hard-boiled mysteries. And there's, and there's something about it that I just really, really related to the first time I read it to the point where I, I, I still go back to it year after year. And every time I do, it seems like I get a different emotional experience through reading that book. It's, there's always something that I didn't realize before or that I didn't get the, for the previous time that I had read it. And it just seems to be so richly written that I think that it really, it's certainly well known. It's certainly a book that people like and, and appreciate, but it's not usually considered on the same level as his others because it's just such a departure from the usual noir, hard-boiled mysteries that he had written before that really made him famous. Yeah, well, you have not done a uh, video on that particular book and no, at least no not I've considered it. yeah i've, I've yeah. considered it but yeah it's it's it, it's a book that for me is is very hard to put into words exactly what the impact that it has on me is so it's it's one that i've considered trying to do an episode on but i've i've ebbed and flowed and kind of come back to it and and, and faded away from it because i can't quite ever find just exactly what I want to say about it in such a way that would satisfy me for, for making that video. But it's, it's one that I've definitely pondered over. Right. Well, who is your favorite author? And let's put it this way in the classical genre. And mm -hmm. then if you read more modern stuff, mm -hmm. um, who would be one of your favorite uh, authors? Um, classics. I, I would say my, my favorite author in that I have, <laughs> certainly read the, the 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 most of his works would be Alexander Dumas. Um, I first read The Three Musketeers, I believe I was in seventh grade, and I read it almost by mistake. <laughs> I, I was, I, I had an earth science final that day, and I knew that the test was only going to take me about a half an hour but the teacher had told us ahead of time that we were going to be stuck in the room for three hours and we weren't going to be able to leave until the three hours were up. So I knew I was going to have some time to kill. So on my way out the door in a, in a rush, I picked up uh, this copy of the three Musketeers that I had bought maybe two years ago at a tag sale for 25 cents that I still have because I love the translation so much. And I brought that with me. And in those two hours, I, I think I, probably, like I say, I'm not a fast reader, but I'd say I probably burned through the first quarter of that book. And then I think I finished it over the next few days and then went and tracked down the rest of the D'Artagnan romances uh, with 20 years after and 10 years later, and then the man in the iron mask. And then I read the Count of Monte Cristo and then uh, uh, the, the, the uh, Cavalier Rouge. So I, th I think that for authors, I would say Dumas probably probably my favorite. I think the way that he tells stories is just for, for entertainment value, for pulling a reader in, for making them really feel like they're a, a part of the story, an observer of, of this, this action, I, I think he's, he's second to none. 
favorite book I think would would have to be Don Quixote by Cervantes but that's the only thing I've actually read by Cervantes is is Don Quixote so I don't know that I could really claim him as my favorite author seeing as I've only read the one work but for favorite book I think Don Quixote uh and any day of the week as, as far as modern authors it, it's tricky because I don't read too much <laughs> in the way of literature published I think after about 1900 <laughs> maybe 1920 uh, for for modern stuff, I think Neil Gaiman is is a favorite of mine. I think of of all modern authors who are currently living, breathing, and and just still writing. I think Neil Gaiman is probably my my favorite. He's he's done comic books and novels and and yeah, movies and TV shows and all sorts of things. And I think that he's he's just a fantastic storyteller. Um, for someone a little bit older, uh, no relation despite the last name, but the writings of James Thurber. Uh, are, have always been been favorites of mine, and he's uh, certainly more more contemporary <laughs> than some of the classic literature that I've read before. Uh, I mean, James Thurber, I, I recognize the name, but I can't think of a book or the genre. He was a humorist for the most part. Um, he he did cartoons for the New Yorker in the the mid twentieth century, as well as writing mostly autobiographical short stories in a book called My Life in Hard Times. Uh, he wrote uh, plays, uh, fables for our time, where he sort of reinterpreted some of Aesop's fables, or just outright wrote his own with very unusual morals at the end of them. Uh, so I very much like his work. My mother used to read his short stories to my sister and I when we were very young children, and ever since then, uh, never never fails to put a smile on my face. It's a it's a well of work that I just keep going back to. Um, I think the two, the two short stories in particular that I absolutely adore are called The Night the Bed Fell and The Night the Ghost Got In, which are both semi-autobiographical stories from his, his childhood growing up in Columbus, Ohio. And they're, they're both contained in, in uh, My Life in Hard Times. But also if you get a book, there's a book called The Thurber Carnival, which I think is much more popular, which is a uh, compilation of a lot of his works uh, and those two stories are contained in that and it's really never never fails to put a smile on my face i I'm, I'm not given to outward emotional reaction very much when i read but i can't read either of those stories in my own head i have to read them out loud because i just feel like they're meant to be shared they're meant to be experienced with the people around you and I never can get through them without laughing myself. So yeah, I would say James, the works of James Thurber would certainly be up there for contemporary stuff. Well, uh, one of the things that I noticed on most of your uh, videos, you've got uh, your library in the background and there's a lot of military history, uh, yeah. quite a bit of uh, civil war history. And so I was wondering about the different genres that you read and within the realm of military history um, is the civil war a, an era that you're uh, particularly fascinated with, or does it just so happen that that's where you're shooting? <laughs> um, a little of both. It, it's definitely an area that I'm very fascinated with, which isn't to say that I haven't read a little bit about uh, world wars one and two. My wife reads a lot of, of world war two history. Uh, I've, I've certainly read uh, a bit about the American Revolution and, and French and Indian War as well. But yeah, for, for some reason, 
the Civil War is just happens to be more of a fascinating topic for me to to read about. And I think that it also, in a large part, comes down to that I, I really feel connected to history that I can experience myself in some way, shape, or form. And in the case of the Civil War, being able to go to battlefields or historic sites or see monuments and you can really try to put yourself into those conflicts and those those battles or those uh in, uh, in the case of, of monuments um ceremonies and trying to figure out why those exist so yeah i think when i i first became fascinated by it when i was in grade school um I remember I had a history teacher, I think in eighth grade, that showed the film Gettysburg to us, which was a fantastic movie, and I'm sure that probably helped. But I was absolutely fascinated by the movie and then found out that it was based on a book, which is The Killer Angels by Michael Shara, which was also fascinating, which was, I think, technically historical fiction, but he was a, a relentless researcher. So there's a lot in there that is true to event. If he's embellished a few of the conversations that people had, the events and the way that they took place are, are accurate. Uh, and then my interest kind of festered for a few years. And as of 2009, I was living out in Missouri. And with time on my hands, I started to put together driving tours of the, the, the Mississippi Valley, basically. Uh, and I went to any, any, battlefield or historic site and most most of the most historic sites uh, seem to come back to that time period if not be outright battlefields certainly had something to do with that time period between about the 1850s and, and the, the 1870s or 1880s and it's like I say fascinating to be able to read something and then actually go and see that that place or, or be in that spot. I think I, I read a biography of Lincoln by David, David Herbert Donald, which was fantastic. And I read that ahead of a trip to Springfield, Illinois. And then I got to stand in Lincoln's home because it's part of the uh, national park system. So it's open to, to tourists. And to see those old grainy black and white photographs and see Lincoln standing out front of this same house, which is still there. And the whole area for about two or three blocks around it is still more or less preserved to that time period. So to be able to sort of step back into that is just, is really, is fascinating. Um, do, so you have, I, I, mm -hmm. do you have an author? Sounds like you've read a number of books uh, about the Civil War period. Do you have a particular author that you're more drawn to than others? I read a lot of Lincoln history and for Lincoln works, a uh, historian named Harold Holzer is really considered to be uh, the, 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 the big name in Lincoln scholarship. So I've, I've read a number of his works. I've actually, uh, he, he's also based in New York City by coincidence. So I've heard him speak on, on one occasion too, or I'm sorry, two occasions. Um, and, and he's fantastic. So his, some of his works have been, have been really good. Um, David Herbert Donald, like I said, wrote a really good biography of Lincoln that I very much enjoyed. As far as writers of the time period, Grant's memoirs are fantastic, which also have another fascinating story behind them, which is another one that I keep uh, sort of coming back to 
trying to make an episode about, and I, I just haven't gotten around to, to polishing that one off yet. Uh, there was a, a, by the end of the war, a, a major general from Maine named Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, who was a professor at Bowdoin when the war broke out. And he obtained a two-year leave from the university to go to Europe to study languages and instead went and enlisted. <laughs> and his writings of the war and, and his experiences and the works that he produced later, most notably a, a book called The Passing of the Armies, are just fantastic. He's, he's written several shorter essays and things as well, but The Passing of the Armies was really... And that was a great book that you did a, a, a video on. Yes, that, that I, one I did do, yeah. Yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed that. It was really, really good. Yeah, that was, that was a book that, again, I'm, I'm not really prone to outward emotional responses when I read. I, I, I sort of internalize the, the things that the book is, is trying to impart. But getting to the end of the passing of the armies, Chamberlain was in charge of the Union force that was formerly accepting the surrender of Lee's army. And as Lee's army approached uh, in their, their, their final procession and laying down of arms, Chamberlain ordered uh, a salute for the Union troops to salute the, the Confederate forces, which he was not ordered to do. He wasn't told not to either, but it was he was just supposed to stand there and basically have everyone observe this happen and then everybody goes home and instead chose this sort of gesture of, of honor to these opposing combatants. And the way that he described it and the way that he describes his thought process and kind of what he was thinking going through that at the end of this book was really, after reading his account of these horrific battles leading up to that moment, was really, really emotional. Uh, that, was, that was just really the, the, the way that he writes is, is wonderful. Um, do you listen to many books on tape? I've, I've listened to a few. Yeah. I, I think that it's, it's a lot of fun, especially if, 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 you know, in my case, I have about a, a you know, New York city traffic, maybe a 35 to an hour long, 35 minute to an hour long commute to work every day. So yeah, I, I think that the audiobooks are, can be a, a way to get, books and, and literature across in a way that might not be accessible to people under normal circumstances. And some people just don't like to sit down with a thousand page book and, and try and plow through that, but they can, you know, put headphones on while they're, uh, you know, working in the yard or they can put it on while they're in the car or something like that. And they can still be, they can still have those stories imparted to them. Um, so I, I, I have read a few books on tape, uh, and I, I think that, that it's really a, a fantastic way to, to you know, get that across. Yeah, I'm right now 33 hours into a 41-hour book on um, the life of George Washington. And it's, oh, it's fascinating. It's wonderful. Um, and for me, uh, sitting in front of the easel or sitting in a, a drawing table and mm -hmm. eight, 10 hours a day, six, seven days a week. Sure. It's just nice to cut that on and be there. Right. And I found that it also introduces me to genres. I can't remember much about this book, but it was sort of almost like a Victorian romance that my wife told me later that when she was a young girl, she used to read these books. 
I picked one up at the library and listened to it. Well, I would have never picked mm -hmm. something like that up to read, but sure. listening to it, especially if it's well uh, narrated, it right. really introduced me to a genre that I would never in a million years have picked up. It, it is it is interesting. I think that I'm I'm fascinated by the the form within which things can be presented, because I've certainly bought books that I knew nothing about, but because it was an older book or I liked the binding or it had marbled paper in it or whatever, I, I adore nothing in the world so much as a good secondhand bookshop. So I've, I've certainly been in, in secondhand bookshops and I've found a book and I thought, I'm, I'm going to get this. I don't know why, I don't know what it's about, but it's a beautiful book and I'm going to get it. It's just the form within which that information is presented. And I think audiobooks are the same principle, but a very different example of that, where if you have someone reading an audiobook and they're just kind of going through the motions and they're not really just going and you know, reading the script or whatever, it, it takes you out of it. But like you say, if you have somebody that's presenting that really well, or it's being presented almost as a, a, an audio drama where you could have different actors doing different characters or just an author that's really, uh, interested in his work, really excited about reading this book, really excited about making this, this audiobook and presenting this information. It's really interesting how much more of a connection that can make to, I say a reader, but a listener than just someone who kind of is going through the motions, but it's, it's sort of a different idea of presenting information in a certain form. If you can answer this one, is there a, most misunderstood book in um, in classical literature, or are there books that are really kind of misunderstood by the general public that they really think it's about one thing when it's another, or we in modern times really reinterpret it completely differently than they did back when it was first done? Sure. Um, hmm. I think one of my, I, I think what I would have to say, I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure there are many that just over time the interpretation of has changed as generational values have changed or, or, or so forth. But I think one of my pet peeves, and there's actually a lawsuit going on about this right now, is the idea that Sherlock Holmes is this icy, rude, uh, just terrible, awful human being, but because he's so smart, none of that matters. And I, I think that the reason that interpretation is so popular is because over the past hundred years or so of movies being made about Sherlock Holmes and TV shows being made about Sherlock Holmes, the character in the public consciousness has certainly gone that way. And it's gotten to the point where we've arrived at the character as this human being that's almost incapable of functioning in, in normal society, but can observe it and piece these bits of cases together in such a way that, well, he's, he's horrible, but he's right, so it's okay. That's not really the character that was written. That's not what Doyle put forth. The earlier works of Sherlock Holmes, he was a much more prickly person. He was certainly a confirmed bachelor. He 
maybe didn't have much use for large friend circles and that kind of thing, but he was never really terrible. He could maybe be a bit rude, a bit brash, but he wasn't a horrible person. He wasn't incapable of functioning in society or anything like that in the way that a lot of depictions have him now. And then actually through the later works, Doyle softened his character quite a bit to the point where in, in some of the later works, he's actually very concerned over Watson's well-being after the bad things happen and Holmes runs to his aid and are you all right? Are you okay? Whereas in earlier works, he might have just sort of brushed that off a little bit more. So there's this sort of evolution of the character to this more sympathetic understanding version of that genius. And, and that kind of annoys me a little bit every time I see a new trailer for a new Sherlock Holmes TV show or a new Sherlock Holmes movie. On the one hand, I'm glad that it exists. I'm glad that people continue to like the character because it means that more people continue to read the stories and that's great because they're wonderful stories. But I think that people go to the stories looking for that character because they find that entertaining, which maybe it is for popular media, but it's, it's just not, it's just not accurate. It's just, it's been reinterpreted and reevaluated and changed and adjusted over a hundred years of mass popular media to the point where the versions that come out nowadays that are very popular are so far removed from the original canon that it's, it's kind of frustrating to watch sometimes. Well, now you, I'm, I'm interested. You said that there was actually a lawsuit going on. So just tell me about that. What's going on? I, I, I don't have all the facts. I, I, I'm not a lawyer, so I, I don't pretend to know all the legalese, but as I understand it, Sherlock Holmes is a character in the public domain to a point. So public domain works at the moment, 1923 is kind of the date at which mostly anything published or held up to the general public before that is in the public domain and can be freely used and, and movie studios and TV studios can, can reproduce. Anything published after that date is still able to be copywritten people are still able to hold the copyrights to. And Doyle's estate holds the copyright to Sherlock Holmes stories published after that date, whereas the ones before that date are in the public domain, which is why you see a lot of Sherlock Holmes properties being made is because mostly it's in the public domain. Those stories that were published after that date are the ones that have Holmes as a softer, more sympathetic character. And there's a, I believe it's a, I don't know if it's a Netflix movie or if it's just a, a big studio movie coming out that sort of takes liberty with the original canon. I think it's actually about Holmes's little sister. Uh, I'm, I'm, I, haven't, I haven't seen the trailer. I'm not sure. I've only read about the lawsuit. But the depiction of Holmes in that is as a very warm, sympathetic character. So Doyle's estate is claiming that they're owed royalties because that version of Holmes is still within the Doyle estate's copyright, whereas... The studio is obviously claiming that no, Sherlock Holmes is public domain, but because there's this split in, in the works and in, in the publication works, uh, the publication dates, there's this discrepancy in how the character is portrayed and who exactly owns that version of the character. So I don't know exactly how that's going to come out. I don't know what the, the end result of that 
lawsuit will be. For all I know, it might have been settled already, but it, it certainly was one that I, I found interesting that, that there's copyrights able to be held on temperament. That is that is really fascinating because I've yeah, never heard that before. A, a curious, curious case. I'm going to look up after we're done with this and just see if there's been any more updates on that because I forgot about it until now. Well, a couple of things I want to ask you about your channel sure. is, now you said you started it in 2013 and it was really more of a blog. Is that correct? I started it as a YouTube only channel. So the, the YouTube channel came first. I, like I said, I really didn't find the type of history videos that I wanted to watch on YouTube or anything. And, and maybe they were out there and I just wasn't very good at finding them. I'm not a very tech savvy person as it goes. So I figured, well, if I can't find the things that I would want to watch, maybe I can make them. So that's what I started doing. And I, I think it was, that was 2013. I think the website was either late 2014 or early 2015. I started to come across stories just in my reading in, in research for other projects. Like I say, everything is kind of connected. So a lot of times ideas for projects will come from other things that I'm working on. And I started to come up with stories that I very much wanted to tell, but wouldn't really make an interesting video. It would just be me talking to the camera or me reading a script that I had written to, to the camera rather than being able to show any kind of images or, or really interact with, with the viewer at all. So I thought, well, if I only had a place to write these things, that would be better. So that was where the website itself started, was just sort of a desire to be able to have a, a place where I could write. And then since then, I've, I've written quite a few articles, some of which I'm, 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 I'm very proud of. And I, I, so now everything kind of gets run through the website. The, the videos are still the primary thing that, that I work on, but because I have the website, I no longer feel limited if I come across something that, oh, I think this would make a good podcast. I'll see if I can work on that. We actually have one in the works right now. Um, and again, that's going to get run through the website as well. So it's, it's become more of an umbrella and has been very freeing in terms of the type of content I can come up with. Well, then along that lines, what direction do you see your channel going in the next few years? Um, hmm. Like I say, I've been doing a lot of New York City history lately, a lot of more obscure, just smaller tales and stories and things like that, which has been a lot of fun. And, and a lot of it is, is sort of a run and gun documentary style, which I've been kind of playing around with. I just sort of grab my camera and a microphone and I, with research in hand, will just go out into the city and try and track down any remnants of the things I'm talking about or, or find the, the areas that certain things took place in and, and intersperse that with voiceover and things like that, which has been a lot of fun. I've, like I said, we've got a podcast we're working on right now. We've got two episodes recorded that are currently in the editing bay and we are in various stages of production with another five after that. So I'm excited for that to come out hopefully soon. My, my big thing, I, I have, I have, a very busy notes app on my phone that I keep all of my ideas kind of uh, organized in and that gets very full. So I've got a lot of videos, a lot of stories that I want to tell, a lot of videos that I want to make. I've, I've been working on for the last 
five or six years or so making a full length documentary that would, at this point, I, I was thinking, oh, originally it would be about a half hour. At this point, it's probably going to be closer to an hour. Um, and I'm, I'm just about to the point where I'm ready to really start filming that and really start putting that together, which is really exciting. I'm, I'm really happy to see that come to, come to fruition. Well, that's but, really neat. We've, yeah. we, uh, you know, I told you my wife and I, we'd watch four of your videos today and yeah, two you. of them, two of them were the, uh, playograph oh, the, uh, yeah. with the baseball and, uh, then the Met and the pile of bricks, uh, oh, yeah. or, you know, the pile of blocks that's on top of the, uh, Met. Yep. And, uh, I found both of those really fascinating. Now, to be perfectly honest, um, sports only appeals to me from a historical or a personal level. So I, I don't mind a biography or something, but as far as sports themselves, I, I'm, I'm not that big a fan. Sure. So the fact that the playograph being so intricately and in, intricately involved mm -hmm. in uh, broadcasting early uh, games, I found that fascinating from a historical standpoint. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, and I had never heard of that. So I thought that was just really, really neat. And I've watched a couple of those others that, um, you know, you're touring places in New York. And I thought, well, this is a great direction that you're going. Well, thank you. Yeah, I've, I've been really, I've been having a lot of fun with those. One um, one of the more recent ones that I did, I kind of melded the two areas of interest of, of New York history and literary history. And I did a, a deep dive on Washington Irving's Knickerbocker's history of New York, supposedly written by Diedrich Knickerbocker and, and kind of how Irving marketed that book. It, 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 he, he basically, he basically disappeared Diedrich Knickerbocker who never existed to begin with, but Irving was, was young and brash and very good at, at sort of creating a public sensation around the upcoming release of this, work and so that was a, a lot of fun to be able to sort of mix literary history with new york history and, and sort of come out the, the other side having kind of combined those two areas it was a lot of fun right and is it um is that particular side of uh your documentary making is that easier harder more or less time than your literary commentary videos it's different I would say it's from, from an editing perspective, it's, it's much harder. It takes a lot longer to get a sort of documentary type episode put together than it would some of the, the straight literary history or, or art history videos that I had done uh, put together. It's, I would say the literary history videos tend to be heavier on the, the research and writing side of things. The actual filming I would usually do over the course of an afternoon or an evening. And then the editing about the same amount of time, maybe a, a few hours just at the computer with, with the editing software. And I could usually get that put out because by the time I actually got it on film, it was just a matter of sort of cutting and pasting my pauses and things out of out of episodes and, and putting up any relevant images or artwork or, or photographs or anything like that. But they were done very matter of factly. Whereas nowadays, I, I think it's just sort of a natural progression of how I've learned how to edit video 
where my videos nowadays tend to be tend, tend to look much more complicated the the effects and, and say graphics uh, animations and things that I'm able to do are more complicated and, and I'm much more happy with that I very much enjoy doing that type of thing but it is very time intensive right. the editing side of it more so it's not to say that I, I skimp on the research I don't I don't put an episode in any form into production unless I'm satisfied that I've answered the question that I wanted to answer or have come up with a, a satisfying discussion of the topic that I wanted to discuss but once I would get it filmed, that was almost the least of my worries, was actually having an episode filmed and having all of the assets and resources and things put together. Now I've got to actually make the video and that in, in many cases would take longer than all of the previous steps combined, just because right. they tend to be a little more complicated nowadays, but it's more fun. I, I enjoy doing that type of thing too. So it's, 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 it's different. It's a trade-off, I would say. Right. Well, this has been fantastic. I've been thoroughly enjoy talking to you and same, same. I, I love listening to your to your uh, uh, videos uh, uh, thank you thank you very much especially the the classics that I've already read it's really nice learning stuff that I didn't know but then also there's some that you know I've not read Don Quixote and listening to your commentary on it makes me want to go back now. Well, okay, let me let me read that because I just hadn't given it a chance. Yeah, I'm glad. If, if it helps, uh, Gustav Doré. One of one of my favorite works of Gustav Doré's is his Don Quixote plates. They're just absolutely amazing. They're That's amazing. One of, one of the things I knew the plates from way back when I was younger, and I hadn't actually read the book until about five or six years ago. The, yeah, the, and the and actually, actually, that's where you know I told you over the phone that that's how I stumbled on your website or your uh, videos is that I was doing some research for a graphic work I'm doing. And uh, I was researching Don uh, uh, Dore and your videos popped up and it's like, okay, well, this guy looks interesting. And you know, the rest is history. So uh, this, this was fantastic. Yeah, All right, well, very much enjoyed this. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you, Daniel. Thank you so much for being on the show. And uh, I'm Bill Wilson, and I'm the Arthropologist. If you enjoyed this episode of The Arthropologist, there are more episodes on YouTube. To see my work, you can visit my website, BillWilsonStudio.com, where I have my books, prints, and originals for sale. I'm a portrait painter and illustrator, and there you can contact me about commissioned work. I'm Bill Wilson, and I'm the anthropologist.